Hi everyone. We continue with our sermon series, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Read, listen, take to heart. And we continue with a section of this book that consists of seven letters which the Lord Jesus writes to seven churches in the province of Asia, an area of the Roman Empire that we now know of as the country of Turkey. We come today to the letter that Jesus writes to the church at Pergamon, and I've asked Alf Turner if he would read our scripture passage today, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, you have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. This is God's word. Again, there is such a lot for us to see in these verses, so let's dive straight in. And let's begin by briefly looking at the city of Pergamum. If you have a map and you look at the country of Turkey, Pergamum was situated on the upper northwest, about 26 kilometers from the Aegean Sea, near to the modern city of Bergama. It was built high up on a mountain promontory on the north side of the river Caicos, or so I am told by Wikipedia. Pergamum was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. Ephesus was a much bigger city, a coastal city, and therefore much more cosmopolitan, so that in our day, Ephesus would have been like Cape Town, whereas Pergamum would have been like Pretoria, the centre of the Roman administration. Pergamum was also a proconsular city, which meant that it had a high-ranking Roman official in charge who basically had absolute power over the city. And the symbol of the proconsul was a sword to show that this capital city had the authority to carry out capital punishment, executions. Pergamum was also one of the first centres of emperor worship, in 29 BC, Pergamum had been the first city to erect a temple to a living emperor, Caesar Augustus, as to a god. The temple was dedicated to the divine Augustus and the goddess Roma. And there were many other temples on the hillside of Pergamum to various gods. 
For example, there was the great temple to Zeus, the high god of Greece, who was proclaimed as Zeus Soter, Zeus the saviour. Or the temple to Asclepius, the god of healing, to which people flocked from miles around to be healed. For those of you who like books, you may be interested to know that Pergamon was also famous for its library. It held an estimated 200,000 works, so a great cultural centre as well. What does the Lord Jesus have to say to the church in this great city of Pergamon? Well, as has been the consistent pattern in these letters, Jesus begins with a description of himself that comes from the vision that John had of him back in chapter 1. We read in verse 12, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. The proconsul may have had unlimited power, but actually it is Jesus who holds the sword of true and righteous judgment. But this description of Jesus also sounds a slightly ominous note. Remember that this is the sword that comes from Jesus' mouth. And later in Revelation chapter 19, it is the sword with which to strike down the nations. So already there is a warning here that not all is well in the church at Pergamon. Jesus also begins his address to the church in the same way he begins his addresses to all the churches with just two words that bring comfort and encouragement and confidence. Verse 13, I know. And in particular, Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. There have been a number of suggestions as to what Jesus means here when he refers to the city where Satan has his throne. Reference has been made to the altar of Zeus that jutted out near the top of the mountain. Others have pointed out to the fact that from a certain angle, the hill on which Pergamum was built with all its many temples may have looked like a giant throne. I mentioned earlier the temple of Asclepius, the god of healing. The symbol of Asclepius was a serpent. And of course, later in the book of Revelation, John refers to Satan as that ancient serpent. But probably the correct explanation is the simplest one. And that is that, as we've just seen, Pergamum was the centre for emperor worship. Here we have a human being taking the very place of God so Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. The word live that Jesus uses here is quite important. Usually when the New Testament writers speak about Christians living in the world, they talk about the fact that we are resident aliens and strangers, pilgrims just passing through. But here Jesus uses a word that suggests that even though these Christians live where Satan lives, they are to stay there. They are to remain and be a Christian witness, even in a hostile environment. One thinks of the agonizing decision faced by 8,000 Christians in Afghanistan today. Only 8,000 Christians in the whole country, and they have the most awful choice before them. Do they try to leave the country? 
get on one of the few flights out, hike through the mountains to Pakistan? Or do they remain in a country where Satan has his throne? No judgment at all on those who've opted to leave. I'm pretty sure that if I were living there and had a chance to leave, I would take it. But for the brave souls who've opted to stay and be salt and light in the darkness, Jesus says, I know where you live, where you have decided to stay and settle and serve me, despite living where Satan has free reign at present. These Christians in Pergamum live in the same city in which their archenemy, Satan, lives. And so it's little wonder that there was conflict, and deadly conflict at that. Have a look at verse 13. Jesus says, Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. We know nothing else about this man Antipas, except that in the words of Revelation chapter 12, he did not love his life so much as to shrink from death. And it's quite touching and humbling to see that Jesus refers to Antipas by using a title that in chapter 1 referred to himself. In chapter 1, John speaks about Jesus as being the faithful witness, the faithful martyr. Now Jesus takes that same title and uses it to speak about his friend Antipas, my faithful witness, my faithful martyr. It's a title of honour, but also a title that reminds us that Jesus knows Antipas's experience of martyrdom from the inside of his experience. Antipas did not experience anything that Jesus himself has not already experienced. Now, this time of obvious and outward attack is spoken of in the past tense. It is over. The church had come under attack and they'd not given in. They'd not bowed the knee to Caesar. But now there was another, far more insidious threat to the church, and that was the temptation to compromise with the world around them. Have a look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we're not 100% sure of all the details of what is going on here, but let me try to explain. Two things in particular marked pagan Roman society of that time, idolatry and immorality. We've already seen that the Romans worshipped a vast variety of different gods, and idol worship didn't just happen on the weekend. It was part of the culture of daily life. So, for example, the restaurants of the day were linked to the local temples. The meat that you ate at the restaurant had been offered to idols. So it wasn't so easy when your pagan friends said to you, don't you want to go out with us to a restaurant tonight? 
Equally, the business meeting of the local trade guilds would often begin by pouring out a drink offering to one of the gods to get their blessing on the guild's business transactions. You couldn't be part of the local trade guild without in some way being involved in idol worship. As for sexual immorality, the Roman Empire was notorious for its sexual laxity. One of the writers of the day, a chap called Demosthenes, wrote, We have prostitutes for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the daily care of our persons. But wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households which set a pretty low bar when it came to sexual ethics. And the temptation for Christians in Pergamum was the same as it has always been for Christians, and that is to conform to the standards and practices of the culture around them. However, it wasn't just that Christians in Pergamum were being tempted to compromise, but that there were a group of Christian teachers and preachers in the church who were actively advocating compromise and were doing so from the Bible. It may seem astonishing to us that anyone could argue from Scripture in that way, but we get some insight into their arguments from the book of 1 Corinthians, in which Paul is arguing against this kind of teaching. We don't have time to look at this in detail. You'll have to look at the chapters for yourself afterwards. But when it came to idolatry, these teachers were saying, look, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. And because we've been saved by God, we have freedom now to do anything that we want. Feel free to go to the temples with your non-Christian neighbors. And so Paul writes in chapter 8, and he says, yes, an idol is nothing. But your so-called freedom may be leading your weak brothers back into idolatry. And in chapter 10, he says, well, if you think you're so strong, please remember that actually behind the idols are demons. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. When it came to sexual immorality, these teachers had embraced a form of Gnosticism, which we'll look at again later. They were buying into the Greek idea that a person's body, their flesh, was evil, but their spirits were pure. They were saying, look, our bodies are just a collection of physical desires. They're just biodegradable material that is one day going to be destroyed. What is really important are our spirits. You can sleep with a prostitute and it won't affect your pure spirit. To which Paul says, well, actually, you can't really divide yourself up into little pieces. My body may be my outer self and my soul, my inner self, but both are the same self. What I do with my body, I do with me. And remember that just as God raised Jesus's body from the dead, so he will raise our bodies too. What you do with your body is important. Neither idolatry nor immorality are options for those who truly follow Christ, Paul says, which was exactly what the apostles taught when Gentiles were first becoming Christians. Remember the first church council in Acts chapter 15. The apostles meet together to discuss whether Gentile Christians first have to become Jewish before accepting a Jewish Messiah. 
And they come to the conclusion that you don't become a Christian by obeying a whole lot of laws. You become a Christian by grace alone. But then as evidence that you've received God's grace, your life does have to be different. And so they write a letter to the Gentile believers and say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Now, however, there were a group of Christian teachers and preachers in the church who were teaching the exact opposite. And in this letter to the church at Pergamum, Jesus says, in effect, look, you may think that this teaching is so enlightened and modern and liberating, but it's just the teaching of Balaam. You remember the story of Balaam and his talking donkey from the book of Numbers. Balaam was a foreigner who practiced divination, something forbidden in Israel. And the king of Moab, a man named Balak, asks Balaam to come and curse the Israelites. Balaam, who is also greedy for money, goes along and tries, but he can't curse them. Every time he tries to open up his mouth to curse the Israelites, he ends up blessing them. And so in Numbers chapter 25 and later in chapter 31, we read that eventually Balaam says to Balak, look, you don't need to curse these people. Just get your most attractive young woman to invite the Israelite men to worship your gods. Get them to participate in the sex acts that go along with that worship, and you won't need to do anything else. God himself will wipe them out for you, which is exactly what happened. Balaam taught Balak how to entice the Israelites into the sins of sexual immorality and idolatry. And now these teachers in Pergamum were doing the same. Well, hopefully we now understand a little bit of the background to this passage, but how does it apply to us? I think that this passage has applications to our practice and to our preaching. So that covers all of us today. Let's have a look at each of those in turn. Firstly, our practice. Christians are still supposed to be different from the culture of the day. This past week, I was reading an interview with Shoaib Ibadi, who is the founder of Sat7, a Christian broadcasting network that transmits satellite television programs into Iran and Afghanistan in Persian dialects. The title of the article was, Afghanistan Will Now See Pure Christianity. In the interview, Ibadi was talking about the fact that Christians in Afghanistan now have the opportunity to show to the Muslim world what real Christianity is all about, including loving your enemy, doing good to those who persecute you. And at one point in the interview, he said this, The long presence of the U.S. military made many Afghans associate Christianity with Western culture, and along with it, the homosexuality and prostitution that are a challenge to local values. Now, don't get lost in the details of that illustration, but we must ask an important question. How in the world did we get to the point where the distinguishing mark of Christianity is sexual immorality? 
How is it that Afghans associate Christianity with Western culture? But more importantly, perhaps, how much of my own life is characterized by Western culture? How different am I from the people around me? How much am I compromising in order to fit in? Remember the words of the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. And in Romans chapter 12, we are specifically commanded, do not conform to the pattern of this world. In his sermon on this passage, Pastor Ellis Andre says, we are under pressure to conform to the thought patterns of this world, the world where Satan has his throne, no less. And we are under pressure to drop our moral guard. So many distinctions have become blurred. I'm not advocating that we return to the irrational legalism of yesteryear, but in the process of leaving it, we blurred some necessary distinctions. And without realizing it, we have plunged ourselves into peril. Slowly but surely, we imbibe the mindset of the sick society in which we live. In the name of enlightenment and liberty, we take in trash. What is the solution to conforming and compromise? Well, as Ellis points out, in times past, people tried to deal with compromise through legalism. Good Christians don't go to the movies, or smoke, or drink, or wear pants, or wear jeans to church, or wear makeup, or go to the shops on a Sunday. Many of you grew up in that kind of environment. But those things often led to pride on the one hand, or despair on the other, because they sought to treat the symptoms and not the cause. I was reading Psalm 16 just yesterday, in which David writes these words, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. What kept David from idolatry, from not fitting in to the culture around him? It wasn't a whole lot of rules. It was a living, vibrant, moment-by-moment -moment relationship with God. He was captured by a better vision. And the same needs to be true in our own lives. Isn't that something of what Jesus means in verse 13 when he commends his church? You remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. He's speaking about relationship. And it is a tricky balance because, of course, building a relationship with God, like building a relationship with anyone, does involve a few disciplined habits, as we saw earlier on this year. I need to be spending time alone with God, reading his word, speaking to him in prayer, worshipping him in music and song, but not out of a legalism that says, I must do this for God, but out of a love that says, he has done everything for me. 
The second application of these verses is to preaching and teaching. In fact, the main focus of Jesus' rebuke in this passage is on those who are teaching compromise when it comes to idolatry and immorality. Although please note that the whole congregation is held responsible. Verse 17, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So as an elder, I have a responsibility to you to teach God's word correctly, and you have a responsibility to me to keep me on track. But surely the kind of Christian teachers that we've looked at today are a million miles removed from our own setting. Oh, sadly, that's, that's not the case. You don't have to visit a Christian cult in the backwoods of America to find charismatic leaders who teach the validity of sexual immorality within their community. And tragically, there is a long list of prominent pastors who've somehow justified to themselves and to their victims that adultery and promiscuity is not sinful, and in fact even blessed by God. We read awful stories, such as how recently one Christian leader made his victim pray with him to thank God for the opportunity they'd both received before engaging in adulterous sex. Well, surely there are at least no Christian preachers who teach their people to go after idols. Well, is money not an idol? Doesn't Paul speak in Colossians chapter 3 about greed, which is idolatry? But perhaps we could just broaden the application of today's passage and say that the spirit of compromise is preached and taught when the gospel message is presented as being comfortable. As a preacher of the gospel, I'm haunted by Jesus' words in Luke chapter 6, where he says, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. If my preaching never offends anyone, then is it really the gospel that I am proclaiming? One of the characteristics of false prophecy in the Old Testament was that it was just so comfortable. So, for example, God says this in Isaiah chapter 30, These are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, see no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things, prophesy illusions, leave this way, get off this path and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. And in Micah chapter 2, God says, If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for this people. This isn't something that we find in the Old Testament alone. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and says, Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. I'm not sure that the message, God loves you and wants to bless you and make you happy and give you everything you need, 
adequately reflects the good news of the gospel that our world so desperately needs right now and that our church needs right now. Even here in this letter, this is Jesus speaking to his church, his people. And what does he say in verse 16? Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That doesn't sound very affirming or comforting. And as we go through the rest of this book, we will come across topics such as hell and sin and judgment and holiness. Things that aren't particularly comfortable. Well, we've looked at an awful lot today, and there's so much more that we've left out. Maybe let me pick up on one or two things as we close. Starting with that verse that we've just looked at. The sword of Jesus' mouth is his word. And here then is something so important for us. How can I check that my pastor is not enticing me towards immorality or idolatry or compromise? How can I make sure that I myself am not compromising with the world? By soaking myself in the word of God, by reading great chunks of it regularly and systematically. I'm told that new bank tellers are never given forged notes to handle. During all their long training, they only work with and constantly handle genuine banknotes, so that when they come across a fake note for the very first time, they immediately know from the feel and weight and texture that it is false. The writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 5, speaking of God's word, solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. And then finally, just looking at Jesus' promise to overcomers in verse 17. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. There are various suggestions as to what the hidden manna refers to, and no one really knows. There was a Jewish tradition that said that just before the fall of Jerusalem, the prophet Jeremiah had taken the jar of manna from inside the Ark of the Covenant and hid it so that when the Messiah came, it would reappear. But perhaps the reference here is simply a reminder of what the original manna was intended for. Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses says, God humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Again, then, the need to immerse ourselves in the word of God, to feed on Jesus as the living bread, a relationship with him that is intimate and personal, known only by him and us. And the white stone may similarly be speaking in terms of intimate relationship. Of the nine possible explanations for this white stone, perhaps the one by Daryl Johnson fits the context best. He writes this, and with this we will close. When two friends were about to part, they would divide a white stone in half. Each friend would inscribe his or her name on one of the halves and give it to the other. 
It became a symbol and a promise of their friendship as long as the stone lasted. In other words, Jesus' name is written on my half and my name on his. In this world, I might have to lose the approval and the acceptance of the crowd. I may lose some friendships and special relationships, but the Lord himself pledges his intimate, eternal friendship, and he gives me a new name, a new identity that is personal to me. May God bless you in this week as you seek after Jesus. Amen.